Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. We have been spending our time together in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're in a study on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Last Sunday, we advanced and we looked at when Jesus was confronted in his final week and the religious enemies hated him. And the question I have for you at the outset of our study this morning, and we'll be in Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament, the question is this, do you believe that you need a Savior? Do you believe that you need a Savior? Because last week's message The enemies of Jesus, they believed believed that everybody else needed a Savior. But they thought they were okay. They were religious. They thought they had it all together, and it was everybody else that was messed up. As we look into the family line of Christ this morning, the lineage, if you will, the family tree of Jesus Messiah, we will see seven portraits of grace. Now, on the screen will come a portrait of a family photo. It's public records. And I don't know this family. I don't know who they are, where they're from. I just find it interesting that anyone in that family, what is the story behind their eyes? Now, the little guy, I I see him over there. I don't know what he's up to. He's got a little joker grin on him. He's got a little smile going. It seems like he's up to something. or, Or maybe that's a family photo like your family photos and my family photos. Is it really possible to get everybody together and all enjoy a family photo? It's a little challenging, right? When the kids are little, trying to get them to look at the camera, add a pet into the family photo, and you're just in for a really good time. Then you have the people who don't want to be in the family photo, or if they're in the family photo, they'll be so far back and behind everybody else, you can't even see them in the family photo. But make no mistake, beloved, that's a family, and... They had issues, and they had blessings, and they had difficulties, just like your family and just like mine. Sometimes we look back on pictures, and we think those were the good old days. But the reality is that every day that we live is filled with trouble and blessings, good times and bad times. And as we enter into this study today in the genealogy, the family of the tree of Jesus, then the thought would be, couldn't we put on a little play? Couldn't we put on a little kids program? And maybe your children would want to play a part in Jesus' family tree. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, you better hold on to that until we actually look at who's in the family tree of Jesus. You'll see what I mean as this unfolds. This morning, we're going to see two men. We're going to look at them and five women, five ladies from the family tree of Jesus. So kids, we're gonna, I'm going to give to you a one word, and there's other things that you can write if you're taking notes. You might consider drawing a little picture of what you think that person would look like um, in the space beside uh, on your worship guide. But we're going to start it all out with Father Abraham. Oh, that's great. My son can play Abraham. Well, you need to know this. He's a liar, okay? So Father Abraham, the lying husband. Like, never mind. You can use their son for that one. Uh, We'll hold out for a better part uh, for our son. We'll wait on that, all right? Father Abraham, the lying husband. Now, I did hear last week in uh, kids' church, they were singing Father Abraham, and, so, and one of our kids changed the lyrics to Father Abraham. Father Abraham had too many sons. That's what they changed it to. He had too many sons, had Father Abraham. So uh, that's actually, God blessed Abraham, but he didn't really see it too much in his lifetime. He was a lying husband, Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, the book of the genealogy, so this begins like Genesis, the beginning Now we're in the New Testament, and so the Hebrew uh, recipient of this gospel would hear a, a sound that was familiar to them, the beginning, 
the genealogy. The Bible begins this way, and now they're hearing the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's kind of the three highlights of the, of the mountains of Jesus back to David, back to Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. The first thing we see about Abraham, and you know, he is the father, but he, he, we're going to give him three words, okay? All of these words begin with S for you avid note takers out there, okay? They all begin with S, and here's the first thing we want to know about Abraham. He was sent. This man was sent by God. He was sent by God with a promise to a foreign land. How would you like the message to arrive today? Pack your stuff. Get out of your father's house. Get out of your father's family, your home, everything that's comfortable and familiar to you, and you're going to leave. Where am I going? I'll show you. Get going. Anybody going to pack for that journey? It's bad enough when you know where you're going with the family in tow, right? How much longer? Are we out, you know, are we out of Michigan yet? How, long, how much longer? Are we there yet? Where are you going? Abraham didn't know. But he went with a promise to a foreign land. Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram goes with a promise. Here's the promise. Can you imagine being able to give your child a promise like this? When they graduate and they leave your house and you tell, and you could actually back this up to say, hey, congratulations, you're headed out into life. Here's the promise I'm going to give to you, and this will happen. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. It's going to go good for them. Anybody who curses you, stands in your way, or puts you down, trouble's coming their way. Abraham leaves, and this promise is given to him, and he goes out, but it's like he forgets it. Because the next word is that Abraham is scared. Abraham is scared to death. He was given a promise, enough that he believed the promise. He left home. He's following God's word. He's going out to this foreign country. But there's two different times when Abraham is so scared for his life that he comes up with a plan, and the plan is, Sarah, my beautiful, beautiful, beautiful wife, you are so beautiful. You are just amazingly beautiful. You are so beautiful. Here's the problem with your beauty. Everyone is going to want me dead. So here's what we're going to do. I love you so much. You're so beautiful. Have I told you you're beautiful? Here's a card that says you're beautiful. I tried to draw a picture. I threw it away, and I just wrote you're beautiful on it because that's better. Anybody who asks you, just tell them you're my sister. Okay, if you're Sarah, are you feeling the love? Like, oh. Okay, don't tell anybody you're my wife. Don't tell anybody you're my, that I'm your husband. Just tell them you're, I'm your brother. You're my sister. Okay, but you're beautiful. You're so beautiful. This like describes like half the cards in the Hallmark section on Mother's Day. I know I don't say too much ever, but on this one day a year. So he was sent and he's scared to death. There's two different times. Pharaoh... Pharaoh sees Sarah and Abraham come into his, you know, to Egypt, and he's like, I have to have that woman. Are you married to that woman? No, that's my brother. She's my sister. Okay. That means she's on the market. She's available. She's fair game. But the, the Lord shows up in Genesis 12, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. So the Lord is actually defending Sarah when Abraham is like, just tell him that you're my sister. I'm scared. But Abraham, didn't you remember the promise the Lord gave you? That includes the Pharaoh of Egypt, that if he goes against you, if he hurts you, if he does anything to your family, what do you think the Lord's going to do to him? But he forgets the promise. He's scared. The Lord shows up, defends, and Pharaoh is like, what were you doing? Why didn't you just tell me that's your wife? What's the matter with you? So they leave, 
They're protected. It happens again in Genesis 20. A king, Abimelech, king of Gerar. And the same thing, he's like, man. Now, Sarah must have been, she must have been unusually beautiful. Just, just how do you describe this woman? Everywhere he goes, he's not flattering. He's not lying. She is a 10. And so this king says, I'll take this woman. Oh, good thing. That's my sister. And then the Lord shows up, and I almost see this like a Western line out of a Western movie, you know. Picture the, the music in the background, you know, the tumbleweed. The Lord shows up in the night and says this to Abimelech the king, behold, you're a dead man. The Lord defends Sarah again when Abraham was out to lunch the lying husband. This is where it all begins with the family of God, Israel. Abraham, Abraham, he's our man. Um, Remember, he lied not once but twice about his wife. Well, we're looking for somebody else now. Here's how his life ends. He dies, he's still a sojourner, but he dies satisfied in God. So he was sent, he was scared, And the summation of his life is that he was satisfied in God because he was a sojourner. You know what it is to be a sojourner? It means you travel, 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 travel. He never inherited all of those blessings here on earth. And let me ask us all the question. How do you function when God blesses other people and not you? Does envy rear up in your own heart when things seem to be going well for people and you don't think, why is it going well for them and it's not going well for me? Shouldn't it be going well for me? Abraham learned to be satisfied in God. And this is what Hebrews eleven thirteen says. Of all these who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And Abraham came to the place as a sojourner, but he was satisfied in God. He had all that he needed in the Lord. Well, the next individual that we meet is Tamar. Tamar, you want your daughter? You want your granddaughter to play Tamar? Well, what do we put with her name? She's a one-night stand. A one-night stand. You understand, this is what actually helps me believe the Bible, is that it's not like other people's religions that they make up, that they make everything seem okay and everybody's problems, that we don't have any problems in our religion. Come to our way and everything will go good for you. That's not the scriptures. This is just the truth. This is who's in Messiah's family tree. The account is in Genesis 38. It's in 1 Chronicles 2, 3, and 4. I I remember one time on a Wednesday night, I think uh, Jay and the crew were working in uh, TNT, and and I gave a scripture that was going to be a setup for the teaching that Stephen was going to do. And I remember Jay came to my, he came up and he said, "Um, excuse me, just just before we get going, did you mean to write down Genesis 38? Was that really where we're supposed to go? I was like, oh my bad. No, that wasn't the study for tonight. Uh, That could be a study for another day, but that wasn't our study for tonight. I had the wrong address. Why? Because her life is marked by suffering. In Matthew 1, in verse 3, it says, in Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, Judah. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, name changed Israel, one of his sons, Judah. By Tamar. Who's this Tamar? His daughter-in-law. This woman suffered You want a word to describe her life? She suffered. She suffered great loss as a widow and as a barren widow. She had no child. She didn't have a child from Er. That was his name, Er, however you want to call it. Er, I don't know if that's what, you know, that's that's as much as they got on his name. Uh, What do you want to name your son? Er, okay, that'll work. Wow, I was thinking of something. Hang on a second, I didn't finish his name yet. The other son was Onan, And the scriptures describe these individuals as wicked. 1 Chronicles 2, verse 3, the sons of Judah, Ur, 
Onan, and Shelah, there's the third son. These three, Bethshua, the Canaanite, bore to him. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, also bore him, Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. This woman suffered. Okay, so she was married, and Ur was a wicked son. The Lord killed him. Onan was supposed to fulfill the responsibilities so that the generations would proceed. She would have an heir, and he wouldn't. The Lord killed him. And so then Judah says, well, I got the third son, Shelah, but he's a kid yet. So you know what, Tamar, go back to your dad's house, and you just hang out there until Shelah grows up. And when Shelah grows up, then you can have him, and then you'll have a descendant in honor of my firstborn son. And so she does that. And she's wearing the widow's garments and wearing them and wearing them. And one year turns into a decade, turns into however long it takes for Sheila to grow up. And then she realizes he's never going to give me the third son and I'm going to die a barren widow unless I do something. Then Judah's Canaanite wife dies, and then he goes out to shear the sheep, you know, and, and he's mourning, and now he wanted to be comforted, and so Tamar does this plan. She's shrewd. That's our next word for Tamar, and we really don't hear much good about Tamar, but she is a shrewd woman. So she devises a plan. She takes off the widow's garments. She hears where she, he's going to be. She kind of has his character figured out. Women are often very good at that, figuring out the character of men. And so what she does is she exchanges it and she sits in a place and she's perceived to be a prostitute. And Judah comes by, he's on his way, he has a job to do, a task to be done, and then he sees this woman and he's like, well, you know, life's been pretty hard and I'm pretty lonely. And he stops in and he says, hey, you know, how about you and me? And she says, all right, well, you have a goat. Oh, wow. Okay, a goat. What is your pledge? Oh, I'll get you the goat. No, 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 no. Pledge to me something that tells me you're going to get me the goat. He's like, all right, what do you want? She's like, I'll take that signet, your signature, what they would seal a document with, but I want the cord that goes around it. Okay. And I'll take that walking staff that you have. Would have been, you know, think about it in the Old Testament, Aaron's uh, rod that budded, this, the, Moses, when he goes into Pharaoh. Th this was si significant to him, and it was specific to him. And she says, I'll take that. I'll take your little signet. I'll take the cord. Sounds just like a man, right? Okay, that's all? Yeah, that'll be all. Send me the goat later. They sleep together. She goes back to their father's house. She puts back on the garments. And three months later, they find out this news comes to Judah. Oh, your daughter-in-law, have you heard? He's like, heard what? She's pregnant. Oh, I didn't give her Sheila my son yet. Oh, this is awful. And this delivers me from the plan. I don't have to give Sheila to her. Like, he, you can see this, this man thinking. Genesis 38, verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. You know, oh no. Moreover, she is pregnant by her morality. And Judah said, this compassionate man of, well, no, no character. Bring her out and let her be burned. Well, that solves all of his problems, doesn't it? Now, here's where we see how shrewd she is. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. Think about this. And she just says, excuse me, I, I know you got that fire going really well over there and all the wood is ready and you guys have worked so hard. This is amazing. Right before you put me in the flames, can we just have a moment can I approach the bench? Sure. Yeah, I just want to let you know, would you like to know who I'm pregnant by? Yeah. Okay. Excuse me. Pulls out the signet with the cord. It's not stolen. It's all intact. It was given to me. Uh, anybody know whose signet this is? Let's find out whose signet this is. Hey, Judah, aren't you missing your signet? Uh, isn't that, that looks like yours. Yeah, that's mine. 
Oh, and, and, and also I have this, this walking stick, this staff, this rod. You want to find out who's the, who does that belong to? Hey, Judah, you've been missing your walking stick for about three months, haven't you? Uh, yeah. Then Judah identified, verse 26, them and said, now here's the, sh- here's the shift in the story. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. He didn't violate her again. He didn't take advantage of her again. This is a man that changed. And from him, the lion of the tribe of Judah comes. So you want your daughter to play the role of Tamar? The one night stand? Well, what about the next one? Rahab the prostitute. Like, can you really, like, this is all in a sermon? Like, kids are around? Uh, Is this good? Is this healthy? This is scripture. This is the history of redemption. It continues on in Matthew 1 and verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez, by Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, verse 4, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nehushan, and Nehushan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab and Salmon have a son. His name is Boaz. Let's meet this woman, Rahab the prostitute. Her story is in Joshua 2 and in Joshua 6. Her entire life was devoted to sinful pleasure. If you want to wrap up Rahab, her reputation, her life, everything, how she made her living, it was sinful pleasure. It was sin. She made a living off of this. It's her entire life. She's the owner, probably an owner of a brothel. This is the place where men were always in and out of her house. But here's the reality. Sexual sin never satisfies. Rahab and all who had come to her house were searching. They were searching for what is life all about. And she was searching for the true and living God. And she hears Israel is coming. And they crossed over the Jordan. And she is searching. And so how in the world did these two spies, when they come into her house, how did they know to go to her house? I want to find that out when I get to heaven. What are two spies from Israel doing in the prostitute's house? And she hides them on the roof. And the king sends the messengers and they knock on the door and they say, the two spies, we heard they went in here. She's like, oh, you can look around. They looked around, couldn't find. Oh, they went out while you were, you know, you missed them. They went out the front gate. They're headed that way. There they go. And then she takes and puts a red cord out of that window and Those two spies make their way out and they say, here's the deal. You leave that cord, you leave that red scarlet rope in the window and everyone who's in your house, the Lord will protect. She, completely known for sin, sinful pleasure, whole life sin, and now she becomes known for salvation. This is what grace does. What were you known for before coming to faith in Christ? What are you known for now? Now she's known for salvation. She spared those two spies. Now, I was thinking, studying this week, you know, just looking at it again, going through it. How hard was it for the people of Jericho to actually solve this mystery of the two missing guys? How many red cords were hanging out of windows around Jericho's wall? Like, Hey, have you seen the red cord? There's a red rope hanging out of Rahab. Who, do you need CSI? You need FBI to be like, maybe the guys that were missing went out of her window down to the ground. How about I, how they missed that? I don't know, unless they weren't outside, unless they closed the gates in fear of Israel coming and they never went and looked. But there was a sign. This is, this, this is the testimony. You have to leave that as a witness. And she did. And in Joshua 6.25, but Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. What happened? Israel marched around that city, marched around that city the next day, the next day, six days, seven days, they march around seven times, they shout, 
all of the walls of Jericho fall straight down into the ground except one section of that wall, one section of the city, and it's where there's a red cord hanging out of a window. And everybody that was in that house was saved alive. And not just saved to be on the outskirts of Israel, not like the caboose at the end of the train. Do you really even need it? I don't know. Fine, follow along, Rahab. No. She's taken from an outside, as far outside as you can get, a banned city, Jericho, and brought into Messiah's lineage, the family tree of Jesus. This is how great God's grace is. We continue on and we see our next individual, and it's Ruth the Moabitess. Now, it doesn't seem that bad if you don't know anything about Moab. Oh, you know, Moabitess, no big deal. Matthew 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we see that the father... Boaz and Ruth, and they have a child named Obed. Genesis 19 is where you find the, how these Moabite people came, came to be. And if we're going to use a word to describe Ruth's family and therefore her, her, it was that she was born into a scandalous family. Know anybody that their family is scandalous? Oh, there's that family. Yeah, that, that's Ruth's family. And she was a barren widow from Moab. She descend, she's a descendant of Abraham's infamous nephew, Lot. And she is a descendant of Lot's firstborn daughter. Genesis 19, Lot, the, the whole account, Abraham, Lot, hey, our tribes are so many, they're, they're fighting. We need to separate. So listen, Lot, you choose. You want to go up to the higher plains? I'll go down to the lower plains. You want to go to the lower plains, Abraham said? I'll go to the higher plains. You choose. Lot looks it all over. He's like, that's a hard life up there. Down there's the city. Down there's the malls. You know, all everything is plush. It's easy. I'm going down there. Okay. And he starts out in the plane and he moves closer and closer and he becomes more comfortable with everything that's going on in wicked Sodom and Gomorrah until he's inside and he's even in leadership in those, in those communities. And then the Lord comes and his judgment is on the way. Sodom and Gomorrah were known for sexual immorality, all types of unbelievable just homosexuality, everything in these cities. And the angel of the Lord comes, and the angel of the Lord, they, they, the angels come and they tell Lot, you've got to get out of this city. Judgment is, judgment is coming. And he's like, well, I've got to get my family out of here. And in the end, he can't get anybody out except his wife and two daughters. And everybody else laughs at him like, hey, old man, well, you got religion now? And the angels grab him and pull him out of the city and save his life. And the command is, do not look back to these cities. The judgment of God, the fire of God is falling on these cities. Do not look back. And Lot's wife turned and looked back, turned into a pillar of salt. And so we get out into the hillside, and there you have these two daughters. And these two daughters are thinking, how are we going to have children? Who is going to marry us? And they go through the awful plot of getting their father drunk, sleeping with him one on one night, the next the next night. And born from incest is Moab and Ammon. Ruth, the Moabitess. These are despised people. These are outcast people. And that's Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we find that as Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, and he moves because there's no food in Israel, and he goes to Moab, and his sons end up marrying wives in Moab. And then Naomi loses and buries her husband. And then Naomi buries her two sons, and now she is a widow, and now she has two daughter-in-laws, and what is she going to do for them? 
And she hears there's bread back in Israel. And Ruth 1 says she's going to return home. She's going to go back home. And she goes home empty. She left full and she's going back empty. And both daughter-in-laws say, we'll go with you. And she's like, you should not go away. They walk a little way and she's like, this, this girls, come on. Are you hoping that I'll get married again and have a son and give that son to you? Come on, let's be serious about this. This isn't going to happen. And Orpah says, okay. And Orpah goes back to her family and Ruth says, paraphrase, I ain't going nowhere. I'm going with you. And she makes this commitment of surrender. Yeah, she was known for this scandal her family was so filled with shame for how it began and its, its beginnings, but she's learned something and she's searching just like Rahab was. She's searching and she's found and she wants to be to belong to Yahweh, the God. Even, think about this. Is this how you would use in evangelism someone to come to faith? Is this kind of trial? And yet something through all of Naomi's brokenness has resonated with Ruth. And Ruth says in chapter one of Ruth, verse 16, but Ruth said, do not, she's talking to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, Naomi, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm surrendered. For Ruth to do this, this means she's turning her back like Abraham did. She's turning her back on all her family upbringing, all of the religious tradition that she was raised in. And she's saying, but there's no life there. There's no mercy there. There's no forgiveness there. There's no hope there. I have found and I want your God to be my God. And it happens in the middle of this trial. And she returns, and people can't even recognize her mother-in-law, and they're like, oh, is that Naomi? Whoa, life has not been good to her. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm mad. God has taken from me everything that was important to me. And now put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Hello, I'm with you. I left my family and my home and I'm still here. And she goes out and she's like, Can you mind if I go out and harvest in the fields and get the gleanings for the poor people? Yeah, go ahead. And she just so happens to land in a field of a man who says, Excuse me, who is that woman? Like, oh, well, uh, well, we'll find out, boss. We'll let you know. Hey, um, that is Ruth who came back with Naomi from Moab. She's a widow. Her husband died. She's a Moabitess. And he's like, hey, hey. And he tells her, don't go into anybody else's field. He is not pushed back by the Moabitess term at all. Stay in my field because in my field, the men will not violate you in my field. It's a man of character. Not like Abraham. He's defending. And he says, when she says, I'll marry you, he says, well, hang on a second. I would love to marry you, but there's someone who stands in line first as a kinsman redeemer. So I've got to go find out about this and I'll get right on it. And he gets to the gate the next morning and here comes that one person, the one person that was closer to redeem. And he says, hey, buddy, sit down for a second. We got some business to do. Everybody's gathered. All right, good. I want to let you know. Hey, Naomi's deceased husband, that property you need to redeem that. You're closer. Can you redeem that? And he says, sure, I'll redeem that. And he says, but hang on, fine print. With her is Ruth the Moabitess. And when you redeem that property, you also inherit a daughter-in-law. And the guy says, mm, no, I don't want to lose my name on that. And in Hebrew, it's John Doe said, I don't want to lose my name. And Boaz says, really? Shucks. All right. Everybody's heard this. I will marry her. He marries her. And they're given a son. And that son is put in Naomi's arms. And God's grace completely turns this situation around. She was given a new life. Ruth was given a future in the people of God. She came to know her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, an Old Testament type of Christ. 
Beloved, God writes amazing stories when our lives are surrendered to him. I'm just wondering, how are you living with God right now? Like, this is my life. This is what I believe. This is what I will do. This is what I want. Are you open-handed? Are you surrendered? Oh, that we would learn from this beautiful young woman, Ruth, who had been through so much. Well, that brings us to a, a man, David, a king. What kind of king is he? He's a guilty king. He's a guilty king in verse 6. The record of his adultery is murder, repentance, and restoration. It's all in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Matthew 1, 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David's actions of adultery and murder brought great shame. Shame to him, shame to his family, shame to Israel, shame to God's people, shame to the name of Yahweh. He was supposed to be a righteous king, and instead, he is a wicked king. What happened? Well, in 2 Samuel 11, David, the king, sends his troops to war. He should have been with them, and he wasn't. He stays home. He's flopping around in his bed, whatever time of the day it is. Gets up, he's going to do something, and walks out to the edge of his balcony of the palace, and he looks around, what's everybody doing? Pretty much there's only ladies left. The men are out fighting. And there he looks down, and there's a woman taking a bath, and it's Bathsheba. And his mind goes to work, and he sends a servant, and he says, hey, who is that down there? And you're like, uh, Bathsheba, the wife of your mighty man Uriah? Yeah, yeah, get her. Wait, you know she's married, right, boss, king? Yeah, I'm the king. Get her. And they call for Bathsheba, and she comes to the palace, and David sleeps with her, and then sends her home in the walk of shame, and he's filled with guilt, and she's carrying his child. And then David goes to work. How am I going to cover this up? I have an idea. Call Uriah back from the battle. Bring him home. Uriah, hey, welcome back. How's the battle going out there? Is it a, you guys doing all right out there? Got everything you need? All right, well, I really appreciate it as your king, and so I just want to show you some love. So why don't you head on home? You, you know, you got a lovely wife, I've heard, and, um, you know, she's waiting on you, so you just have a great night. All right, thanks, Uriah. You can go now. Whoo, dodge that bullet. The next morning, the gatepost calls the king. Hey, just want to know, Dave. Um, Uriah, he's, he just camped out at your door. He didn't go home. What? Alcohol. Bring in, bring in the alcohol. Let's get the guy drunk. And maybe when he's drunk, then he won't have any character. He fills him with alcohol. He still won't go home. He's like, what do I got to do to you? He says, no. How am I going to go home and be with my wife when my, my brothers are out on the, on the front line? I'm not doing it. Now David's mad. Now he's ticked. He's angry. He writes the letter. He's like, okay, here you go. And he writes the letter, and he seals it with the king's seal. He says, Uriah, take this to Joab. And he writes his own death sentence. And, jo and, and there Uriah takes that death sentence in his hand back to Joab and says, here's an order from the king. Okay, he opens it up. Send, Joe, send Uriah to the front line and make sure he dies. And that happens, and other men die. Our sin always affects other people. It's not just, uh, just affecting us. And David thinks he got away, and then he comes in like this hero, like, oh, Uriah died. Send the word to Bathsheba, and Bathsheba, you know, I'll take care of you. Oh, did you hear the king? He's so honorable. He's such an amazing king. Uriah, one of his mighty men, died, and, and Bathsheba, oh, you know, is at home, and he married her, and he's going to provide for her, and he's going to take care of her. And David is thinking, whew, that was close. Child is on the way. And then in 2 Samuel 12, the man of God is on the way. And Nathan comes. Hey, uh, king, I, I got to tell you something. You know, in your kingdom, there's a, there's a rich rancher. He, he's got all, all kinds of sheep. 
Well, that's a good thing. Glad everybody's doing good. Yeah, here's the problem. There's a poor little family. They had one lamb, and the rich guy has a friend come in, and instead of killing one of his many sheep, he goes down and he says, hey, give me your lamb. He takes the family, the poor family's one lamb. He slaughters it, serves it up for dinner for his company. And David is filled with rage. Not in my kingdom. That man's going to die. And Nathan gives those words to the king and points his finger right at the king's face and says, you are the man. And David is crushed. Like Judah, when, Ju when Tamar says, oh yeah, sure, who does this belong to and this and this, these three, your honor, who, who's, she has been more righteous than I. And David humbly admits his sin. So that the end of his life isn't marked by shame, it's marked by sacrifice. His life is marked by sacrifice. He responded through repentance and he responded in worship. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. David, listen, you shall not die. You're not gonna die. David would live, he would worship. Psalm 51 would be written out of this deep valley of despair. But here's the problem, David's son, that son born of adultery would die. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, this, this scene unfolds of what was happening. David arose from the earth, he washed and anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Verse 21, then his servant said to him, 2 Samuel 12, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live, but, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? There's nothing that can be done for those after they die. It's over. No prayers. There's no offerings that can be given. It's done. He says, why, why would I do anything more? He says, can I bring him back again? The answer is no, you can't. And then he gives these words, I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. And the comfort that is in that one little nugget out of this great sorrow, tragedy, sin is that David says, I have confidence. I'm going to die one day and I will be reunited with that little one. In the grace of God, that little one, whether it be families that go through dealing with miscarriage or whether it be loss or even abortion, that in God's grace and in his care, they will not come back, but we will go to them and we will see them. That animal had to die to cover David's sin. It didn't take it away, but it covered it. And one day, a descendant of David's would die so that those words could be given, David, David, listen, you just pronounced the death penalty for the guy who stole a lamb. Do you hear the words that are coming out of your mouth, Mr. Religious King, self-righteous king? You were ready to bring the death sentence for a guy who took a lamb and you stole a husband. What should happen to you? He should die. But here's the word, you're gonna live because one day a son from you will die in your place. What an amazing story. That brings us to Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the unfaithful wife. Matthew chapter one, six, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Do you see how different that is now? Notice her name, Bathsheba's name, is not in Matthew. That would have been kinder to just say Bathsheba. And then the, the, the untrained listener would be like, yeah, that's right, David, Bathsheba. You know, they were husband and wife, and then they had a son. Son's name's Solomon. Solomon continues on. But, the, but Matthew isn't willing to do that. He's not willing to just, you know, tiptoe through this. For the Hebrew hearer, he wants to go full steam, headlight, brilliant, the wife of Uriah, 
That's Bathsheba. What is she remembered for? She slept with the king. That's her notable accomplishment in life. She slept with the king and she is remembered for adultery. Would you like to be remembered for thousands of years, for one night, for one choice, for one bad action in your life? You want your daughters or granddaughter to play Bathsheba in the program? Her husband was unbelievably loyal, a man of valor a man of honor. And her? You say, but yeah, but she might have died. She might have died if she would have told the king's men, the servants, no, I'm not going. I have a husband. My husband is loyal. He loves me. I'm not going to sleep with the king. I'm not going to his palace. But she didn't. Her husband was loyal and she was unloyal, but she was comforted to become the mother of Solomon. God's grace runs far and wide to rescue and redeem. Bathsheba should have died along with David, but God gave to her the undeserved gift of a son. So if you're here and you're thinking, but I have this mistake, this season in my life, this choice in my life, this pattern in my life, I don't think anything can break through. Then listen to the testimony of David and listen to the testimony of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 24. The Lord delights in forgiveness. And it says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went into her and he lay with her and she bore a son. And he called, David called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, verse 25, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Listen to this nugget. Listen to this gem that in what way should God have ever blessed this child? But God delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing forgiveness. And he just doesn't send Nathan with bad news. He sends Nathan with good news. Yeah, David, you deserve to die. But I want you to know something. The Lord loves this son. And he has forgiven you. What a precious testimony of grace. The last person that we will come to at the end of this genealogy is Mary. The betrothed virgin. You say, well, yeah, I, that's, that's the one. Put my daughter in to play the part of Mary. Yeah, that's the one we want. Sign my granddaughter up for Mary, the betrothed virgin. That's who we want. Well, we'll think about that in a few moments, okay? Verse 7, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Matthew chapter 1, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, verse 10, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So that's when the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by the kingdom of Babylon, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Wait, we just looked at Bathsheba, Bathsheba's name, the wife of Uriah. Now we see that Matthew is taking, and he's, he's, he's highlighting the virgin birth. 
Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. All of this time waiting. In, in that list that we, ju- we just read, there were righteous kings and there were wicked kings. And the prophets, like we saw last week, were coming to all of those kings saying, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. You need to turn to God. You need to lead in righteousness. And some listened and some didn't. And it comes all the way down to this Mary, the one who is betrothed to Joseph, her husband. Mary demonstrated submission, completely yielded to God's plan. Like, well, yeah, I want, I want my daughter to play that. That'd be great to be submitted. That's wonderful. That's not like Rahab or Tamar, you know. Much better to have Mary. That's better than Bathsheba. Well, Luke 1 Verse 26, in the sixth month, that's the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. So at six months, that's when Elizabeth has now uh, been pregnant, Zacharias' wife, with John the Baptist. Verse 27, this to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. How much is impossible with God? Nothing. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is submission. Whatever you want from me, Lord, have your way with me. Mary was chosen by God to bear us. What does she become most remembered for? A savior a savior. And Mary knew that she needed this savior. There are some who think that Mary did not need a savior, that she never sinned, and she never had children after the burying of Jesus, but that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. Mary knew that she needed a savior. She rejoiced in the gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And verse 47 and my spirit rejoices in God. She doesn't say the Savior. It's personal. My Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Huh, three months. Three months, that was about the time when they said, hey, Judah, your daughter-in-law, uh, uh, uh. burn her. 
So you think about it, you want Mary, you want your daughter to play the role of Mary. Or how about Joseph, the husband of Mary? She's going back to her hometown and the rest of her life, she is going to deal with the whispers and the gossip and the accusations and the misunderstanding of, yeah, right, the Holy Spirit came over, huh, yeah, right, from everyone, her family, her parents, everybody, and even the siblings that would be raised in her house, that what Simeon would say to her, that a sword is going to pierce your heart. This child that you have born when he's delivered is going to divide people. Arise and fall with many. And Mary, your soul is going to be pierced with a sword. You really want your daughter to play the role of Mary? Fast forward 33 years that she would be at the foot of that cross and her son and her savior and our Messiah was slaughtered on a Roman cross for her sin and for your sin and for the sins of anyone who would turn. You really want to be in her shoes on that day? It's our only hope. And as Jesus would look down and he would say to John the disciple, behold your mother. A faithful son, take care of my mom. It's not like Abraham. It's surely not like David. That's Jesus. And when this list comes up and you look at all these individuals on this list, all of those in Jesus' family tree, they all needed Jesus. They all needed salvation. They all needed, like we need, a Savior to be rescued from our sin. Not one of them deserved a Savior, and you don't deserve a Savior, and I don't, but He has come. I love what Sam Alberry says in this quote. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family He has come for. I find great hope in that. I don't know what your family story is. I don't know how many blessings and burdens and good times and difficult times. And as you get together and, or you don't get together and you miss your loved ones and you, and you long to be with them or you're actually glad you don't have to be with them this year because of their family and the difficulties, whatever it may be, everybody's family is different. Understand, look at this picture. Look at these portraits. Don't tell me that you're too far gone that God cannot save you. Don't tell me that God does not delight in forgiveness. That person you're thinking of, that there's no way that they would ever bow their knee to Christ and receive his gift of salvation. Look at this list. If there's hope for all of these individuals, outsiders of the most outsiders, there's hope for you. And there's hope for your loved ones. Do not give up. And if you're here, if you're watching online, if you're listening to this sermon and you have never turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation for you. To simply cry out to the Lord like Judah did, I'm unrighteous. She is more righteous than I. Like David did, you're right, I'm wrong. Have you ever said that to God? You're right and I'm wrong. You're holy and I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, that's why Jesus came. And he will receive you and save you and change your life if you will submit to him, yield to him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gift of salvation. I thank you for this family tree that is just brutal. And it shows us clearly that you delight in showing mercy, that you delight in showing forgiveness. You are a God of grace. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for allowing Jesus, your body, to be broken and you shed your blood so that we can be forgiven. I pray that all under the sound of my voice, those who know you, those who have been forgiven, that we will be encouraged to not give up hope for those who have not yet trusted in you. For those who are listening and they just don't believe that, that you are real or that, that they need you, Father, I pray that you would change 
by the power of your spirit, their heart and their mind and their life. They would just cry out to you for mercy and give you their life. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' good and powerful name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.